Amen. So our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and then 9 through 10. You can find it here on the screen. Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to start with a question um, this morning. Why are we here? You know, like, sure, here, right now, this moment, 11 a.m. on Sunday, January 8th. Well, it's 11.25, if you're keeping track. But why are we here? Really? you got better stuff to do, surely, right? Other stuff to do. Maybe you don't think it's better, but you certainly have other stuff to do. A lot of people have other stuff to do, actually. Um, why are we here? And why does the church even exist? I'm not talking necessarily like metaphysically. I mean, like, what's the purpose? There are other ways that God could do things. Why does the church exist? And why are we here? Well, it's a good question. I think it's a good question. Uh, It's what we're going to be looking at today specifically, but something over the next six weeks or so that we're going to focus on a little more intently. Because the struggle, I think, for all of us is that we can fall in this place where church becomes a routine, or our religious life becomes more about just, you know, what we've always done, without a lot of, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? What is it that is about these, like, old and ancient stories that connects tangibly to our life in the 21st century today? So, to do that... I want to start with a story. Well, actually, first, I do like this quote. The reason that why matters, Simon Sinek. uh, He said this, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And what you do simply proves what you believe. And I say variation of that a lot. Um, And so if I can find someone else who says what I'm saying and I can put his name on a slide with two hyphens in front of it, it makes it seem far more authoritative than when I just say it, right? So, but what Simon's getting at is this idea that like, what you actually believe is how you live your life, right? We use the illustration of gravity all the time. I don't have to try to make myself believe in gravity. I just do, in part because a good experience taught me very well from a number of different years. I think like when I was like three or four and I fell off the trapeze and bit through my tongue, that was an unpleasant experience for me, probably worse for my parents. But I learned to believe in gravity upon that experience. So, What you believe has a way of working itself out in how you actually live your life. And that really cuts to this idea that, you know, so often we want to explain stuff without really giving clarity of purpose and and vision. So that's really what we're focusing on. Um, So to start with the story, I think this is helpful. Anyone remember Blockbuster, these guys? Anyone know who that, that picture is of? 
It's okay, I didn't either. I, I, I looked this up, it's pretty fun. Well, I actually put the picture in there, and so I had to look it up to do that, but. Anyway, first Blockbuster store opened in 1985 in Dallas, Texas. I don't know when. If someone can shout out when the Blockbuster in Colonial Heights opened, when did that open? Anyone know? I remember that in the Verizon store, where it is, right? May it rest in peace. Okay, no one knows. You guys didn't go to Blockbuster. You don't watch movies. It's okay. Anyway, over the next 20 years, Blockbuster grew to over 9,000 stores around the world. That's not too bad. Uh, their business was, as you know, video rental, right? Primarily VHS, but not exclusive VHS. Uh, DVDs were introduced in 1997, so once that became a thing, they started to do that. They got into the game rental business. They did that as well. Uh, it, also in 1997, though, there was two guys, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, who had this idea to rent DVDs through the mail. DVDs, keep in mind, just came out that year. It was pretty new. And if you remember the first DVDs, they were like, like big, you know? They weren't like CD size, they were like record size which was an interesting move. I, we had one in, like, in school, and one of the teachers, she had this like, really big thing, and I remember she pulled out like, this, this giant CD, and was, we were like, what is that? She's like, it's a DVD. It's the future. And I was like, whoa. Anyway, they had this idea in 1997 to start a male DVD rental business. Uh, they worked through the internet, and they named their fledgling company Netflix, right? Two years later, Jeff Bezos, who ran this growing but still relatively small online bookstore called Amazon, Jeff Bezos offered to buy Netflix for $15 million. These boys said, no thanks, that's not enough money. So they took their idea, because they did want to sell, they wanted to monetize it, so they took their idea to Blockbuster and said, you can have Netflix for $50 million. Netflix's CEO, John Antiaco, pictured here, he looks like a tough guy, doesn't he? Looks like a CEO of Blockbuster, you know? Right there. He said this, he said that the offer was a, quote, joke, and that, quote, the dot-com hysteria is completely overblown. So instead, they partnered with Enron for an on-demand video service that did not even start, right? It's like, I was reading through this, and I was like, you gotta be kidding me, like, really? You can't make this stuff up. Enron went bankrupt a couple months after uh, they started this idea. Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy in 2010. There is one Blockbuster store still in the United States today, I think still in the world today, and it's in Bend, Oregon, and it's actually a museum. Like a bunch of celebrities donated their stuff to it to make it like, you know, still there. They don't actually rent movies, <laughs> to my knowledge, I don't know. Anyway, the point is that today Netflix has over 222 million subscribers. This was as of September 22, so a few months ago, and is worth almost $50 billion today. Little difference. So what's the point? Well, what is Blockbuster's purpose? Why did Blockbuster exist? Did they exist to rent VHSs out of their store? Or did they exist to provide entertainment for people? Right? It's, just a, it's just a question, right? There's a number of different ways you could look at it, but if you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, then you are inevitably going to fail in actually doing the thing that you need to do, that you were put on earth to do. If you do not understand with great clarity why you're doing things, then you won't be able to adjust when the world around you changes. If you don't understand with great clarity your purpose as a human being, or as a church, 
or as anything, then inevitably when life gets hard or stuff changes or gets confusing, you're going to be like Blockbuster. And at the end of the day, frankly, I do not want to be Blockbuster. All due respect to John Antiaco and Blockbuster. May it rest in peace. But I don't want to be that. I don't want you to be that. I don't want our church to be that. I don't want any church to be that. But it is something that we do have to reckon with and to pay close attention to. So what this gets to is fundamentally this question of why church? Why church? What's the purpose? And so, as I said, over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at that in greater detail, what that looks like, and a biblical vision for following Jesus in the 21st century. If that sounds scary, it's really not. It's actually incredibly simple and very easy. But part of the challenge is we have to get past our culturally conditioned ways of understanding church. Okay? We have to get back to what does the New Testament say? How have the people of God understood this over time? And how has that changed by the time we get to this day? Okay? You with me so far? It's not so scary, I promise. It'll be a lot of fun. More blockbuster stories to come. Maybe not exactly, but that's, that's the best blockbuster story we got. So in order to understand your question, I think we need to ask a more fundamental question. To understand the purpose of the church, we really have to understand the purpose of human life. And I promise I'm not going to get too far off into the weeds on this, but it is important. Because what is the church fundamentally, Right? What does Peter say it is? Now, this is what Peter was explaining in that text that we read at the very beginning. He says, you are a what? Chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the, God's special possession. That's not language that we use a lot when we talk about church, is it? Or the people in church. You are the people of God, is what Peter says. So... If the church is the people of God, and we want to understand what is the purpose of the church, and we also need to understand what is the purpose of people, right? So relatively briefly, we'll go through this. If you ask people generally what is the meaning of life, you'll get a lot of answers from a lot of different people. It could be to maximize your pleasure, you know? Live your best life. You do you. It could be, you know, just live into your potential, you just want to maximize your potential. It's not bad. It might be to follow the rules. Some people who are particularly weird like me, just really into following rules. And some people, they just love it. Just follow the rules. But to take that, like, you know, off the obviously kind of humorous side of that and just kind of extrapolate it, this is where, like, your purpose in life becomes being moralistic. You know, you just want to be a good person. And honestly, that's, like, a, a temptation that I constantly have to fight. It's like, I just want to follow the rules. I want to do the right thing. So if that's your ultimate meaning, some people, that's it. Ultimate meaning and purpose in life. For others, it's maybe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not bad, but sound familiar. Okay. Uh, for others, there's no meaning. There's none at all. We're just here by a happy cosmic accident. A bunch of random assemblage of particles shoved together, and you're just, you, there's no reason why you're here. So just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's not like a particularly happy outlook on life, but that is a perspective that some people have. For others, the probably most common answer is that, you know, there isn't really an answer. So why bother? You can't know it. So just, you know, do what you feel. You can't possibly know the meaning of life. That's such a big question. Of course, the, the problem is, is that, well, if you take seriously anything in life, right, the agnostic approach to stuff is a horrible approach, right? The agnostic approach meaning I don't know. 
And so to say, like, well, I don't know. There can't possibly be a meaning in life. Well, it's like we don't take that approach to literally anything that matters, right? Like if I'm trying to catch a flight, and you say, hey, what time's your flight tomorrow? I, who can, I don't know, I'm agnostic. I don't really care. Whatever. You don't do that. I know. I have it on my phone. I have it, like, backed up and, and pasted on stuff. I have it in my calendar. I have it in multiple places. Why? Because it actually matters. And so part of the reason that sometimes we shift towards an agnostic approach because we don't want to know. Not because we can't know. Because we don't want to know. Because if you know, it requires something of you. If there is a God, he requires something of you. So sometimes it's easier to say, oh, I don't know what my flight is. Show up when we get there. There is a biblical answer to the question, why human beings exist. Take whatever you want. You can, you can hold to any of those and say, that's what I believe. I'm going to live my truth. That's it. That's fine. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not upset with you. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Remember, it's just like gravity. There's, you know, live your truth. But what I do want to explain is what the Bible actually does say about it, like with some clarity, because it actually has a very clear answer. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, there is an answer to this. And of course, not surprisingly, and I've explained this before in different ways, but I think it's helpful to go back over. It starts in Genesis 1. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So from the overflow of the, the very Trinitarian being of love, from the overflow of love itself comes all life. That's where it comes from. And it's from that overflow that God creates male and female, man and woman, human beings to do what? to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the critters on the land. Right? He created human beings to rule with him in his world. So human beings were made to reflect God's character in this world that he made in loving to reflect the world's praise back to him. Right? This is what it means to be a priest, to kind of stand at that intersection between heaven and earth and to reflect God's character to people and the world's praises back to God. Okay? That's the basic idea. Uh, if you know the story, though, you know that human beings fail pretty dramatically, not too far after this. And incidentally, this is, you know, just kind of sidebar here. You excited for a sidebar? Taking a trip, but not through a sandbar. Okay, just making sure you're awake. You need to do that sometimes. That's a really bad joke. It was bad. Alex is like, that's awful. Don't ever say that again. Um, so you look at the story in Genesis 3, right? Human beings were created to do what? Exercise dominion, to rule over the earth, right? Given authority is what they were. God's authority over what? The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How does Genesis 3 start? Now, the serpent was the craftiest, craftiest of all creatures that God had made that moved on the ground. And then, of course, what? We listen to the lie of the serpent. We reach out. We grab the fruit because we think that we need to grab that. And of course, ultimately, what that is is an abdication of our responsibility as human beings. Adam and Eve were given authority over the serpent, but what did they do? Ultimately, they ceded that to the serpent and did exactly what he said to do. That's the story of sin in the world. Sin is one of those things that maybe we don't always talk about, don't really know how to talk about. It's a little uncomfortable. You can't really talk about it in polite public society nowadays. You start talking about sin, people think you're crazy or a lunatic or just a religious fanatic. Try it sometime. Go out to like, you know, a restaurant and start talking about sin and people look at you funny. 
but what is it really? Uh, I think Ignatius of Loyola defined it really well. I like the way he's the founder of the Jesuit order. He said it like this. He said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is nothing but my deepest happiness. The way the New Testament defines it, the actual word used in the New Testament is missing the mark. It's an archery term, like if you're actually missing the target. So we see is that human beings were made in a certain way with a specific purpose to reflect God's character into the world, to live in loving union and relationship with him. Sin then is anything that is not that. Right? Which then kind of makes sense when you go over to Paul and Romans and say, like, well, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, I'd say we have. I'd say I have pretty regularly. Right? That's the picture that we have. So we have human beings created in the image of God to reflect his glory, his love, his character. We have sin, which pulls us down. And the reason that we need to grasp this is, of course, because we have to understand that life isn't just about not breaking the rules. And specifically, the Christian life is not about just not breaking the rules. And specifically, the sin is not just about not breaking the rules. But it is about the kind of person that we are becoming. We were created in the image of God, but human beings are deformed. We are less than human. When you sin, you are acting in a way that is less than human, as God intended it to be. I found it to be really helpful for my thinking, right? That when I'm angry at my kids because they're not cooperating in the way that I want them to be, you know, and I start to be less than pleasant to the people around me, I'm acting subhumanly, which, you know, it's hard to reckon with, but it must be reckoned with, right? You've got to deal with it. I like the way John Tyson said this. Uh, to me, this is also very helpful. He said, we need to not think about this so much in terms of moral binaries, right and wrong. Though, of course, that's true. Nothing wrong with that. He says, but the problem is when you think in terms of moral binaries, right and wrong, then you, human beings inevitably go to, like, what's the bare minimum I can do to get by? Right? It's like if your curfew is 10 o'clock, how late after 10 can I come in before I get in trouble? You know? If the speed limit is 70, over 70 can I go before I get pulled over? 78? Because everybody knows it's not 70. You can go over. It's fine. No one's going to get you. 72, 78, 80. What is it? 74. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, from personal experience. Right. Yeah. Right? So rather than thinking in terms of moral binaries, it's really more about answering the question, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Am I becoming more like Jesus by the way that I'm living my life? Or am I being deformed into a less than human representation of him in the world? And so, you know, I extrapolate that through anything and everything in your life. And just maybe wrestle with that a little bit. But it's, it's a valid question, a good question to ask. And so we look around, and what we see is people who are failing to live up to their potential for who they were created to be in the image of God. And I look in the mirror, and I see a man who regularly fails to live up to the potential of the man God created him to be. And I look at my beautiful children, and I see little girls who are being constantly deformed by a world, telling them that they should not become the person that God created them to be. And I look at you, you wonderful people, and I see a community of people who are being assaulted and deformed by a world that does not care about God at all. And that frankly just wants you to buy more stuff. 
So why church? C.S. Lewis said this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We cannot forget who human beings are and in whose image we are created. It is glorious. And that is the potential that you are to see when you look at another human being. Not necessarily in the ways that they've been deformed, but in who God created them to be. The glorious splendor. And Lewis goes on, like, if you saw these people, the way that they will be in God, the fullness of God's kingdom one day, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Think about that next time your neighbor cuts you off or doesn't put the trash out the right way or, you know, the mail guy doesn't put your mailbox flap up properly. Happens to my mailbox a lot. It's the mailbox, you know, i got to fix it, but... You get the idea, right? We were created to be a people of love. That's who God made us to be. And as you go throughout scriptures, this is the story. From Genesis to Revelation. In Exodus, God's covenant with the people of Israel and Moses, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All the way through the New Testament, Jesus' message is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Peter, numero uno disciple, Put it like this, like we read, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, the people of God, right? Uh, Revelation, John says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is our calling. This is what human beings were made for. And these echoes of Genesis from beginning to end call out the purpose of human life. The Westminster Catechism, if anyone's familiar with that, this is like an old catechism, is just a way of teaching. And so the question is, what is the purpose of man? What is the chief end of man in the old language? And the answer was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To translate that, to become a person of genuine love and live in intimacy with him every moment of every day. It's an incredible gift and opportunity. And when we take a step back and we look at the biblical story, at the center of it really and truly is Jesus, the son of God and the son of man the inflection point of human history, the living stone, Peter said, who will cause many to stumble in Israel. He died a criminal's death on a cross. He proclaimed a message of the kingdom at hand. He offered people the forgiveness for sin and freedom from shame. He is resurrected to new life because God's power is greater than the strongest thing that we can see in this world, i.e. death. And he reigns at, to this very day from his throne, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, I think this is the really challenging part, the principal instrument of his reigning in this world is us. You and me. People want to know, what's the will of God? How do I know it? You know it. You just don't do it. (laughs) Very often, right? For everything that we don't know, there is a bunch of stuff that we do know that we just don't do. Right? Like when Jesus commands, you know, I love, you've heard that it was said, hate your enemies. Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. As I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the vision for human life then is to become someone who when someone wrongs you, you spontaneously respond to them with love. 
That's the picture of human life as God intended it. That is so hard. Like, can we just be really honest? Who, like, if you do that regularly, please tell me. <laughs> like, please. I must learn at your feet. This is such a challenge. But that's the vision. That's the picture. And it's what Jesus lives out. But as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To love your enemies is a sacrifice. And it costs you a lot. To forgive someone is a sacrifice. And it's costly. To overlook a slight from someone is a sacrifice. And frankly, it really sucks. <laughs> but it's the invitation of Jesus. It's how he lived his life. And it's who he calls us to be. And what Peter says, you come to him, you are being built into a spiritual house, right? That the, the church would not be a physical building, but it would be the people of God. Dallas Willard said this, he said, the primary function of the church is not evangelism, as important as that is, but to be a place for the dwelling of God on the earth. This requires that people grow and receive God and occupy their place with God in this world. Evangelism, which is important as it can be, will take care of itself if you get this part right. Um, in another week, I'm going to tell you the story of the Moravian movement in the 1700s. I just finished a book on it. My mom got me for Christmas. Super good. The other night, Wendy and I were, were reading um, in bed, and she was like, what are you reading? I was just like over there just like staring at the ceiling. She's like, what are you reading? I was like, well, <laughs> time out here. Let me tell you about the Moravians. And then it was like, you know, 30 minutes later, she had that look that some of you give me pretty regularly where your eyes just kind of like glaze over and focus just shifts. And I was like, that was too much, wasn't it? She was like, what? No, I was listening. She's still, God bless her. She's still like getting it, you know? But another, that's for another day. But the point is, is that things like evangelism, things like mission, they take care of themselves if you get the first part right. If the people of God become actually the people of God who are living with him in relationship with him, who have his spirit in them, who become the dwelling place for God on the earth. But wait, you say. None of you said that. It's okay. Not offended. But wait, what about the Great Commission? What about, therefore go and make disciples of all nations? What does that have to do with any of this at all? What about that you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth? What about go and proclaim the gospel to all creatures? What about that? Steve, come on. I just finished my Bible in a year reading plan last year. I know, I read it. Good question. You see what Jesus is getting at here. He's calling human beings to be his disciples. That word disciples means students, right? He's calling people to be his students in his way of being a human being. So if the vision for human life is to become a person of genuine love, created in the image of God, formed in the image of God, that's who we were always meant to be, and yet we are fallen because of sin, what Jesus offers is the pathway back Jesus and Jesus alone is the pathway back to becoming who we were created to be. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not offering a religious proposition that you can either tack on your board and say, I believe it or I don't believe it. He's just saying, this is the way reality is. I'm the way to becoming a human. I'm the truth about all reality. And I am the kind of life that you always longed to live. That's it. 
Discipleship is the pathway to becoming the person that God intends you to be. So, back to our fundamental question that we were looking at. Why church? Why church? Why does the church exist? There's a lot of other ways God could do it. There's a lot of other ways he could save people. Why does the church exist? Does the church exist to entertain people? Does the church exist to put on wonderful services? Does the church exist to reach people? We use that language a lot. It's, but what does that mean? Does the church exist to keep people out of trouble? Does the church exist to provide social services or social programs? Does the church exist to provide a foundation for order in a society of chaos? Why church? Does the church exist to meet my needs and preferences? Does the church exist to get all the young people in, as important as that is, to capture their hearts? And here's the thing, right? Okay, sidebar again, but why does this matter? It's because we live in a world where young people are being deformed from the image of God at an incredibly rapid rate because they have cell phones in their pockets 24-7 that are telling them a different way to be human. That's why it matters that the gospel connects with the heart of young people, right? And it's not they're bad, it's not there's anything wrong, it's just that our world is, it's in a way. There is no shortage of information out there. There is a shortage of real knowledge and real wisdom and real love and real grace and a people of compassion, a people of mercy. That's what we're missing. So, why church? The church exists for the purpose of discipleship to Jesus. That is God's gift to a broken world. The church exists, as Peter said, oh, that's my last slide. It's good to know. It's a good one to land on. You're happy now. You're like, oh, thank goodness. This is the last slide. We can be done. The purpose of church exists to serve as a platform to get me to Lacaretta for lunch. No. I love Lacaretta, by the way. No hating on Lacaretta, okay? <laughs> Promise. Give me some queso. Be happy, man. Lily will be very happy. She could eat her weight in queso. <laughs> Why church? God gives the church to the world for the purpose of discipling people, to teach them his way of being human to live his way of being human, to be carriers of his presence into the world. That's why the church exists. Like Peter said, right, to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. When you drive by a church, rather than thinking like, oh, I wonder what they have on their sign, or oh, I wonder what the worship's like, or oh, I think I know someone that goes there. That is God's special possession. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people. How might that change how we think about things? How might when stuff doesn't go the way that we want it to in church, which so often happens, right? I've been in churches and around churches for long enough. You know, people disappoint you. Stuff happens. You know, things change. And rather than getting upset, say, that's not what I wanted. I don't like that. It's not the way it used to be. Say, they are God's chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession something that Val said a couple years ago, actually. Val, I didn't tell you that I was going to say this, but it just came to my mind. We were actually sitting out here. It was October 2020, and we were talking about Ephesians, and we were talking about the building of God, like his temple being his people, and Val said something really profound. She said, um, she's like, oh, I did. (laughs) Yes, I did. Um, She said, like, you know, we talk about defaming and defrauding buildings, right? It's like if someone graffitied our building, how upset would we be? 
when someone came and like wrecked the little prayer garden, we were pretty upset. We got cameras in response to that, you know? Shelled out some serious cash for that. Why don't we get as upset when people gossip, when they call other people names, when they talk down to people who are God's special possession? Because that's the church. This is a beautiful building, but you're the church. And the church exists to reflect the love of God into the world, to be the community of disciples who are being formed in his image, who are growing to become people of love, living in intimacy with him. And the truth is so often, that's, that's just not often what our experience of church is, right? I mean, I could be wrong. That's not been generally my experience of church from the time I was a kid. Not that it's bad. I had a lot of really great experiences. But just what becomes the most important thing in church reveals what is the most important thing to the church. You know? When the purpose of the church is to be the community of disciples, people who are learning to be like Jesus, people who are reflecting the love of God in the world, people who are being formed into people of genuine love. And so I guess the reason this is personal for me is because, you know, when I got into being a pastor, I really did it. We still got time. I'm checking. I'm like, how much time have I got? Time. Plenty. No, when I got into this, I mean, it was, you know, I wanted to help people to follow Jesus. And that's why, you know, most pastors that I talk to and know get into ministry. And over time, not that it's no one's fault, no one's done anything wrong, but just what tends to happen is that we tend to get in this place where what we really do is just provide religious goods and services. And the deeper questions about, you know, am I following Jesus in my day-to-day? How do I, how do I live out a relationship with God in my workplace? Or how do I disciple my kids? Or how do I forgive someone? So often those questions just don't come up, Right? And so often, I think the other, the other side of this is that when you look at the church today and you look at what it actually provides for human beings and what it does in the world, you know, if a person wants to be healed from some kind of trauma, where do they go? They don't go to a church. They go to a therapist, they go to a counselor, they go to all sorts of places. Not that it's bad, those are really good things. I've done it myself. But why is it that they don't go to a church? Why is it they don't go to the people of God's special possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation? Why is it that they do not find the healing and the love and the compassion that they need? Why is it that Alcoholics Anonymous, a place of real confession and just brutal honesty, has to move into the basements of churches if it's there at all? Why is it that it has to be something outside of the fabric of the core life of the church? These are just questions, right? As Einstein rather famously, infamously quipped, I don't know, maybe he didn't even say it, I don't know, but if he gave me an hour, he said, if he gave me an hour, I'd spend the first 55 minutes trying to find the right question, and the last five minutes trying to solve it. So just asking the right questions is good, and sometimes what I find is you just gotta ask so many questions until a couple of them stick. Just ask questions relentlessly. And I think part of the struggle for me is that I've learned and grown and come to understand what I do about Scripture and who Jesus is and what the purpose of the church is and all this stuff about becoming a people of love and being formed in the image of Christ. And you know, the, the challenge that I have, honestly, 
is do I just preach good sermons that, you know, people will generally appreciate? Um, I throw in some Dallas Willard and C.S. Lewis quotes, and everybody's like, oh, that's so good. He's smart. He wears a blazer with elbow pads. You know, he's a sharp guy. So I can do things like this, and my elbows won't get worn through, you know? That was kind of funny. <laughs> it was kind of dumb, actually. Um, like, I could do that, but I don't want to, right? I don't want to settle for that. I don't want us to settle for that. I want to be a people who at least take this seriously, you know? I'm not saying that anything we've done in the past we don't, or that anything we've done in the past is wrong, but I'm just saying, what might it look like if the church reorganized its entire focus and purpose around forming people in the image of Jesus? What would be the things that you do? What would be the things that you don't do? What would change on Sunday morning? What would not change on Sunday morning? How would that change your life every day of the week? How would that change the relationships in the church? Questions, you know? I'm not saying I have the answers, but I am saying that there is a way that Jesus gives. And it's an invitation for all of us to become who we were meant to be. And at the end of the day, you know, it's not just about us, but it's about the people who are coming after us. It's about the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren who are growing up in a very confused world with artificial intelligence and virtual reality and all sorts of things that are going to be constantly pressuring them in all kinds of different ways that we can't even imagine right now. You want to know something really funny? I'll kind of land on this. Is I actually asked, anyone know ChatGPT? I was talking to Alex. I won't like devolve too much. Has anyone heard of this right in the news? Yeah, the artificial intelligence bot that was created to just kind of like it just all it does it has all this pull all sorts of information really really fast from all the different corners of the internet. That's all it does. So I asked it a question because you know why not? It was like, what's the purpose and meaning of life? And you know, and then I did some found some different people who did the same kind of thing. And of course, like the answers were you know what you'd expect but they were confused, they weren't coherent, none of them actually fit together. If someone tried to live out all the things that it said to do, they'd be a total mess. Because it's like, ah, oh, the purpose and meaning of life is to live in relationship with the creator. It's not a bad answer, really. It's like, so that means that you should do whatever you like and enjoy your life. It's like, hold on now, where are we going with this? But see, this is the point, though, is that for a generation who is not looking necessarily to Jesus as the answer to all of life's questions, how do we then represent him in the world? Like, that's what I want us to really sit with. And that's really what we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks. And so if you're wondering, how do we actually do that, come back next week and the week after that. And I think it will be really helpful and encouraging to you. Because there is a way. And we don't have to be blockbuster. I promise. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, um, the living stone, who comes to offer us real life and real purpose. Jesus, the one who you shattered all of our expectations, just people's expectations of what they thought the Messiah was supposed to be, of what they thought God was really like, and you so often upended those. Jesus, you come and you speak to us now as your people, as your special possession, as a royal priesthood and holy nation. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us in this time. Send us forth with your presence and your power. 
Help us to live as your people in this world and to live in relationship with you. For every um, person that's here, I just pray that you would meet them in a special way, that you would touch their hearts in a special way, and you would help them to know you, to become who they were created to be, and to grow into your image and likeness. I just invite you to take a moment just to sit. It's going to be quiet. That may be awkward, but that's okay. Just sit in the stillness and the quiet. And if there's anything impressed upon your heart, then make note of it. Think about it. Jesus, we bless you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.